We continue our series of sermons. We're up to Revelation chapter 2. And uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed preparing this sermon this week because um, I think what happens is a lot of people say, Book of Revelation has got a lot of weird things. Therefore, even if something looks black and white, we need to work out a weird way to interpret it. And the easiest way to interpret the Revelation is that uh, what it says is what it says. And uh, take it at its simplest form. Second key is look to the rest of the book to see if uh, the thoughts that are being presented are given expression elsewhere. Then you look to scripture. And so I had a great chat with one of the guys I was surfing with this morning who got sent this lovely email from a friend of his explaining how a number of the major modern rock stars are mentioned in the book of Revelation. And this is a prophecy and fulfilment of the end times. And uh, we're just chatting away. He just thought the guy was an idiot. Because uh, I'm quite sure that when John wrote his letter in Patmos, he wasn't thinking of 21st century rock stars. And so what does it say for us here in, um, uh, in Revelation? Right, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, he describes these, and he write to them about three key things. And uh, in Revelation 1, 19, he says, I'm going to write to you about the things that are. And chapter 2 and chapter 3 are the things that are. This is the churches that were there in what we call modern-day Turkey. There's seven churches. They were actual churches. And I was thinking this morning, I wonder how big those churches are. Because when we read these letters, you're thinking, now this must be a church of like 5,000 people because it's you know, being written to by an apostle. But some of these seven churches, some of them might be this, our size. They might have been like 20 people. Others might have been 50. Some might have been 100. But they wouldn't necessarily have been gigantically huge churches that he's writing to. So he's writing to these people saying, I want to encourage you. And so as we go through the book of Revelation, you'll pick up some of the background stuff. I was thinking, if it wasn't inspired by God, how brilliant would you have to be to intertwine so much complex stuff in it? Like for instance, I don't know if you picked up the chapter 1 last week that we looked at the nature of Jesus. All the characteristics of Jesus are then repeated nearly word for word in chapter 22, the last chapter of Revelation. As we get to chapter 2 and 3, we have seven churches. And you say, why is the number seven picked? Why was it six, not eight? Why, did, why was seven chosen? And as we go through the book of Revelation, the number seven is used over 20 times in this book. And it's actually been used more times by John here than the rest of the New Testament combined. So it has a lot of meaning. So what do we have? We have seven churches. We have seven spirits, seven golden lampstands, seven stars, seven lamps, seven seals, seven horns, seven eyes, seven trumpets, and there's a whole lot more of sevens. Now, some of the sevens can be subtle. So we have seven years of judgment. We have seven attributes given, listed of the, uh, the Lamb of God, which is Jesus. And as you go through the book of Revelation, you find numbers quite often have a depth of many behind it. So we find there's the number 666. We have the 144,000. We have 12 gates. We have four horsemen. So why was the number seven being used here? What is he trying to convey to us? The first idea that is not just to the Bible, but is common to most cultures when they talk about sevens, is the idea of fullness or completion. It's the number of perfection. So where does the number seven go back to? Genesis 1, God created the world in seven days. The whole world was fully completed and made in seven days. So when he's writing to these seven churches, it's a reflective of him saying, I'm writing to all the churches of the whole world, and these seven reflect that. So when he wrote, each of these churches had a message for them. But the message is also for us. 
So we can read what is being said to them and say, this is going to give us insight to certain situations. So there's a spiritual depth there. Now, as I read, I enjoyed, some people said, the seven churches, because they love trying to find symbolism everywhere, represent seven historical time periods throughout history. And they say, look at that, uh, with the last letter is uh, where we're living now, Church of Laodicea. They're neither hot nor cold. They're, I'll spew you out of my mouth. So in other words, the, the preacher who believed this would then do a massive sermon that you guys are all lukewarm, you're all slack, you're all lazy, you know, be better. And it'd be a great uh, excuse for a preacher to kind of stick it to his congregation. And so it's a great idea. There's only one problem with this. It, uh, it doesn't really fit nicely. I read a number of uh, interpretations, and each interpretation differed to each other interpretation about how the seven time periods worked. And so I don't think it represents seven time periods, but uh, it does represent seven churches in seven different situations they faced. Because not all churches are the same. I've worked in a number of churches over the years, and every church I've worked in was different had different issues, different strengths, different weaknesses. Some of the churches I worked in were quite small, like here. Others were, um, like one of the churches was technically the biggest church outside of Sydney in New South Wales. It was a church of over a thousand people. And you're thinking, well, what makes these churches different and how, do you, how should we view it? A good way to view it is that uh, John is saying there are seven different churches here I'm running to, each have different situations. And this is how I can encourage each of you in each of the situations that you face. So each of these churches reflect our modern times. So each of the seven churches in Revelation, we can find their parallel church in modern society. Today, we have churches that reject the Bible, the same as we have in the seven churches. There's other churches that are theologically soft. There's other churches who are living on their laurels. There are churches who have got strange or cultic errors that have uh, crept into their congregations. There are some churches who allow immorality and turn a blind eye to misbehaviour. There are churches that are stable. There are churches that are dying. There are churches going through revival. And these churches could all be in one suburb. I can think of one church I worked in and we had about half a dozen churches in our area and they're all like chalk and cheese. They had uh, very little in common. And that's the same here. So let's turn to our first church. So we'll do a quick outline of the seven churches, then we'll look at uh, in more depth at what their, their message is. But the first church is the church of Ephesus. It's the church where the uh, book of Ephesians had been written to. And when the book of Ephesians had been written to them, they were a church that Paul wanted to encourage. And it's one of the rare letters that doesn't list any problems. So what's happened now? It says it's a church that has forsaken its first love. They've got a bit spiritually lazy, a bit spiritually uh, smug, a bit spiritually comfortable. And uh, could this be the issue that faces our church? If we live in a comfortable, comfortable life, would we stretch ourselves out of our comfort zone for kingdom ministry? Like it's interesting, I uh, love surfing and, uh, every morning, so I've done my 30-minute uh, surf this morning and uh, probably talked to maybe 20 or 30 people as I wander around the streets my bike and whatever. And uh, it would be easy for me to just have meaningless conversations with every person like, G'day, it's a nice day or whatever. But for me as a man of God, I'm called to speak spiritual things into people's lives. And so two of the people this morning had great spiritual conversations of great spiritual depth. Because that's where God puts me. Was I in my comfort zone? No. But 
My prayer is I do not lose my first love, the passion of the gospel. The second church there, Smyrna, is one that was facing persecution. So if you were living in Syria today with the ISIS, Smyrna, the message would be one that would be encouraging for you. If you're living in a place where there's a conflict uh, about the gospel, the letter to Smyrna is a letter of encouragement for you. Now Pergamon was a church that sadly had fallen off the rails. They needed to repent and a call to repentance. Thyatira is a church that allowed false prophets into their church to be teaching stuff that is wacko jacko. And uh, we as a church need to be very conscious that we don't allow false teachers to take a uh, key seat with what we do. The church in Sardis is a church that is described that had fallen asleep. So uh, the sense of saying the church is uh, the church is closed years ago, but we still keep it on Sundays for those who are dead who want to come and be buried here. And I heard a sarcastic comment made about Woi Woi this week that um, Woi Woi is the biggest town where everybody's buried above ground. <laughs> and so what's happened to this church here? They're asleep. They're dead. And the church of Philadelphia was one that was encouraged that they're saying you're facing really hard times. You need to face the, and, and endure patiently during your struggles. <laughs> And of course, the church of Laodicea, we mentioned earlier, was a church that was lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. And we're told that they need to become something. They cannot just stay being wishy-washy. So when we go through these uh, seven churches, they give us insights to seven ways that churches could face today. And the challenge for us is to say, what type of church are we? What are our strengths? What are some things that we as a church need to work on what are some things that we should be praying about? How could we glorify God better? And how can we do things differently? And so the, the, as we read through these letters, they're the thoughts that should be going through our mind. So as we go to the seven letters, uh, they all start with a, a key a, a theme that follows through. And each of them start with the first section being Jesus. And it picks up on the ideas of who Jesus was in chapter 1. And so we find the qualities of Jesus are mentioned again. So there in Revelation 1.20, he's the, Jesus is one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, walks in the midst of the seven candlesticks. He's described in Revelation 1 as the first and the last, who was dead and is now alive. It says that his, uh, his uh, tongue is like a sharp uh, sword with two edges, which is symbolic of um, Hebrews, which says the word of God is a two-edged sword. It says his eyes are like flames of fire, his feet like fine brass, that he has seven spirits, the seven stars, the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of all creation. So John, to each of the seven letters, starts with saying, remember who Jesus is. Why is that? Because we are Jesus' church. Our purpose is Jesus. Our focus is Jesus. Our message is Jesus. So why do we put Jesus in such a high position? If we go to Matthew chapter 16, it says, that talking about Jesus, upon this rock I will build my church. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, this is how he described Jesus. He says, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, all things were created through Jesus and for him. And when it comes to Jesus and the church, he says, He is the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, that in everything He might be preeminent. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, making peace 
by the blood of the cross. So here we are at Pitwater Presbyterian Church. Is this my church? No. Is this your church? In one sense, no. Is it the Presbyterians? No. This is Jesus' church. We are God's people, God's family, called to love each other as families, brothers and sisters, under the headship of Christ at all times. Jesus is one who's in control. So how do we measure a church? Is it the size of the church? Is it success of the church? Is it how popular a church is or how well it's known? Or how much money it gets each week in the offertory? Or is it by holiness? Faithfulness? Faithfully enduring to the end? So no matter how big a church is, God wants us to be holy and loving and faithful people. And that is the measure of who we should be. We need to ask ourselves, am I being faithful to the word of God? Do I desire to put God first in my decisions? Is our salvation on the foundation of Christ? What is most important to us? And Paul, when he finished that statement about Jesus, reminded us that Jesus in chapter, uh, verse 22 said that Jesus came to reconcile us in order to present you and I holy and blameless. So in John here, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Each letter starts with who Jesus is to say, put him in the right spot. If Jesus is in the right spot, all the other things start going properly in the church. I don't know if you've ever done this. You've started doing up the buttons in your church and you get to the top button and realise it's wonky. And you realise you don't undo one button. You undo every single button and get the first button right. What's the first button? Jesus. For every church, the first button is him. Now, the second thing that each church does, it commends them. So it doesn't just say, gee, you're a bunch of slackers, get busy. He wants to encourage them and support them. Say, here are some things that you guys are doing good. He wants to support them. So there in uh, Revelation 2 verse 2, one of the churches, he says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, and you have tested those who call themselves apostles. Then in chapter 2, verse 3, I know that you endured patiently, that you have not grown weary. And there was a cultic group in their time called the Nicolaitans. And one of the churches was told in chapter 2, verse 6, that you hated the works of the Nicolaitans, or the false teachers. Then another church in 2, 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander that you have faced. Why? Because they were struggling. Then the church in 2, 13, to hold fast my name and you do not deny my faith. Then in 2.19, I know your works, your love, your faith and service and patient endurance. So when we turn to chapter 3, the first church there is told to strengthen what remains. And you go through the rest of what it says about that church, they were really doing it hard. It says, I know how hard you're doing it. I know how bad things have been. But strengthen what remains. Then in Revelation 3.8, I know your works. I know you have little power. And you have kept my word and have not denied my name. You have kept my word about about patient endurance. Hold fast to what you have. So six of the seven churches are given words of encouragement. The only one who misses out is the church of Laodicea. Nothing is said to them of encouragement. Because poor John looks at the church and saying, everything's a mess. 
you really do need to change. As we read these comments, I wonder what we would write about our church. What comments would you write to the other members here? Would you say, I really value that you're a church that I know that prays for me? Because we do pray for each other. I wonder what things we would see is our greatest strengths. I think we actually bat way above our average. There's not many small churches that would have a lot of the gifts that our church has. We are so blessed. But what would you want to say to encourage us? Now the third section he does in the list is encourage them. He says, right, I've said things that are good about you. However, these are areas that you need to work on. So the church of Ephesus, he says here in chapter uh, 2 verse 4, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. He wants to call them back, says, I know where you used to be, but you're not there now. Get back to where you need to be spiritually. To the church of Sperna, it says that they did not receive a rebuke. And you say, well, why is that? Because they were really struggling. And so he's thinking, why would I want to tell you about things you can improve on? Because at the moment, you're just holding on by the skin of your teeth. Things are really hard for you. I'm just happy to give you words of encouragement from where you are at the moment. And it's fascinating. I've learned to, from being in big, big churches to tiny churches that the size of the church doesn't reflect the quality of the congregation or the quality of the message. One of my favourite writers uh, came to Australia as a preacher and he got kicked out of the church he was preaching at. Then he started his own little preaching hall and I realised the whole time he was in Australia was a miserable time for him. I think when he went back to England, he would have just said, oh, gee, I wouldn't want to go back to Australia ever again. You, you know, just don't go to Sydney. I had a friend of mine when I said I was going to go work in a church in Wilkins. He said, oh, don't go there. Every minister I know goes there, gives up the faith, and they become adulterers. And you know, Don't do that because I don't want that to happen to you, which I got there and I survived quite happily. But we do face struggles. And the faithfulness of our message doesn't mean that we will be popular. And it's reflect on John chapter 6 from the Gospels. Jesus with his disciples. We've talked about the feeding of the, 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 feeding of the thousands. And as Jesus talks to his disciples, uh, he talks about how the implication is the Son of God. And on hearing it, many of his disciples said from verse 60, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? Which is him really saying, I am really, really am the Son of God. And it says, The Spirit gives life, the Spirit counts for nothing. This word I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. And he went on to say, This is why I told you, that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Success is holiness, not numbers. One man can go to a church and preach faithfully and empty the place. Another man can go to a church, preach faithfully, and suddenly the place is over full. The measure is the faithfulness to the word, 
not how many people respond. And of course, this poor church was going through a hard time and they did need to be encouraged. They did need to be reminded to be faithful, not to change their message. Now, when we get to the church in uh, Pergamos, it says here in Revelation 2, verse 14, it said the struggle for them was that some followed the teaching of Balaam, who taught that Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, which is a story from the Old Testament. And why was this such an issue? Because it said that some of you now will eat food offered to sacrifice of idols, and you're really going back to idolatry. You're going back to the, the wrong ways. Others of you are now practicing sexual immorality because you're saying, well, who cares? We're, we're holy, you know, we can do whatever we like. And then in verse 15, it says that some hold on to the teaching of Nicolaitans. Now, in reality, we know next to nothing about who these Nicolaitans are. Uh, Clement of Alexandria, who is an early church father, said this, The Nicolaitans, they abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence. They're teaching perverted grace and replaced liberty with license. So what were the Nicolaitans doing? They were taking God's gift of grace, his gospel, and saying immorality is okay. It's okay to change the message to suit our times. And the trouble with people, churches who say, I'm going to preach a message that our current generation likes, that sermon is as good as yesterday's newspaper. What's yesterday's newspaper good for? Wrapping up fish and chips and not much else. And sadly, when churches try and be as contemporary as they can be, if it's at the cost of the gospel, the problem with that is the gospel is what saves, not a contemporary message. Now, the church in Thyatira, in verse, uh, chapter 22, verse 20, their problem was they practiced sexual immorality and they ate food offered to idols. Then the church in Sardis, there in chapter 3, verse 1, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. I have not found your works complete in my sight. Now the church of Philadelphia, which was our Bible reading today, had nothing negative said about that church because they were a church of blessing and encouragement. And of course the last church, Laodicea. What does he say? I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. If you've been either hot nor cold, we could have been of use. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I have a, a, a person I know very, very well who is a mega multimillionaire. He and his wife hit a point in their life where they were really struggling in their relationship. And despite basically a, a, a zero church background, he and his wife started visiting churches where they lived because they wanted to find something that would save their marriage. And they knew it was most likely by going to a church. And I said, well, how did you find it? So, well, I said, it was quite upsetting, because he was a mega multimillionaire and uh, quite a leading businessman in his town. And he said, I go to these churches and they preach me about how I can be rich and famous and successful if I'm faithful to God. And he's thinking, I am rich, I am faithful, I am successful, I've got everything. But I desperately need something that all my money cannot buy. Why would the church preach a lie? You can see the struggle he had. He wanted to find eternity. But he was offered coin. So after John each time says, here are areas you need to work on, he doesn't just walk away and say, good, I've, I've slogged it to them. 
He wants to encourage them and give them words of exhortation. Now, each uh, of the churches were often told they needed to repent. They needed some massive life transformation. Each of the churches were told to be faithful. But he says things like this. Do the first works. Remember what you were like when you were spiritually on fire. Or he's also said things like, fear not, be faithful unto death. Or be watchful, strengthen the things that remain. So this type of message is one that would be given to churches to encourage where they were. The fifth area is that of alternative. In the midst of what is happening, you remind that Jesus is in the centre of everything that you do. Jesus will support you and encourage you. So we find in Revelation 2, I will come quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. In other words, God will bring judgment. It's his to bring. We remind that Jesus will come like a thief in the knife in chapter 3. And for those who reject him, he will spew you out of his mouth. So this is the, uh, the, the symmetry of how the letter goes. And the last part, he wants to finish with a promise. Some eternal offer of satisfaction. So what are we told for you and I? There will come a day when you and I will eat from the tree of life. We'll receive a crown of life upon our heads. That you and I will eat the hidden manna and receive a white stone with a new name. Uh, in many countries, when people get baptised, they will give them a baptismal name. And quite often they will pick a, a Bible name from the Bible. And so you meet uh, heaps of Bible name people from Africa. Because they said, you know, I was born with this name. But this is my Christ-given name because I have a new life. What will we be wearing in heaven? We will be clothed in white clothes. Our names will not be blotted out from the book of life. We'll be given power over the nations and we'll be kept from the hour of temptation. We'll be made a pillar in the temple of God in the new Jerusalem. Jesus' new name will be written upon each of us. That you and I will be called to fellowship with Christ. That we'll come in with him and eat with him and he will eat with us. And the symbolism of us eating with God is a sign of intimacy, of family, of being in fellowship. So if you were John writing to Newport, what would you say to encourage us? What would you say we need to work on? And what things from Scripture would you want to remind us of? As we go to these letters, there's a chance for us to reflect on how we can encourage one another and build each other up. Because we are the people of God. We are the house of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are called as a family to love, and to serve, honour and praise. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father God, as we reflect on the seven churches, it reminds us that you are Lord of Lords and King of Kings. May we at all times put you first in all we say and all we do. May we do that as individuals, may we do it as families, and may we do it as a congregation. Amen.